Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I can take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving value's contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. If you're trying to use money that requires banks, you can't trust the banks, right? You certainly can't trust the banks in Africa and South America and most of Asia. It used to be Americans thought they could trust American banks. Now they're realizing that they can't trust American banks. So the first order impact of the banking crisis is people think, well, maybe the money I had in the bank's going away, and so I ought to put it in a bank in cyberspace that isn't controlled by the government or by the bankers, and that's Bitcoin. The second order impact is the solution to the banking crisis is print more dollars. And if you print more dollars, the actual monetary inflation rate goes 10%, 15%, 20%. So you think... Why do you think those bonds crashed? The, you know, because they're actually claims on dollars. Do you really want to hold a billion dollars of Zimbabwe dollars? What if I offered you 10 billion Zimbabwe dollars? I mean, the answer is it's going to a nickel, okay? So if the, cur if the paper currency keeps crashing, then you can't own anything that's currency-related. You can't own a currency derivative. You need to own something that politicians can't print more of. Okay, well, that's oil. That's land. But the problem is try hauling 100,000 barrels of oil from where you are to London, where you want to be. How are you going to do that? I'll give you a billion dollars of land in Central Africa and then someone takes over with machine guns and declares that everyone with large amounts of land now loses it. That happened in Zimbabwe. You're going to pick up the land on your back and carry it to France? So it's kind of – it's simple. If people lose faith in the banks, they lose faith in the currency. When they lose faith in the currency, they lose faith in the government. When you lose faith in the bank, the currency, and the government, and someone says, what, do you, what can you trust? The answer is you can trust Bitcoin because you can custody your own asset. You can run your own node. And at the end of the day, even if the Chinese want to shut it down, they can't. If the Russians want to shut it down, they can't. If any nation state wants to shut it down, they can't. If the U.S. wanted to shut it down, they can't. And so... Everybody wants something that they can trust that is beyond the reach of a corrupt politician, a corrupt corporate executive, or they don't have to be corrupt. They can just be well-meaning, trying to do the right thing in a misguided fashion mm -hmm. and meddling with your economic life. This, if there's ever been a time for you to make that argument and make it aggressively and scream it off the top of your lungs is right now, especially the fact that three out of the uh, four largest banks that – ever gone out of business in the history of America were done in the last uh, 90 days. You got Wamu was the biggest, which was September of 2008, $307 billion. First Republic was $212 billion. That was May 1st. Silicon Valley Bank, March 10th, $209 billion. Signature Bank, March 12th, $110 billion. And the next one, closest one to it, is IndyMac. If you remember IndyMac, it was only a $31 billion auto company back then in 08. So someone may be listening to this and say, oh, my God, oh, man. This guy's right. Maybe, maybe I ought to start moving my money out of my bank as soon as possible. And, you know, 
Jamie Dimon, I know these guys are trying to get people not to take the money out of the bank and have too many bank runs because if they do that and you know some are taking the money out of their bank and putting in the money market, is is Michael saying take my money out and put him put it in Bitcoin or are you saying maybe take it and put it in a bigger bank? Uh, I'm a little concerned, Michael. You sound smarter than me. What should I do? The average person's thinking that right now. So are you saying that these three out of four largest banks that went out of business that happened last 90, day, 90 days, there's more to come and things are going to get uglier than what it's been last 90 days? Or are you just saying the fact that if you keep your money in the bank, at any point they can make that decision and control your money? I, I'm, I'm saying that money is a store of value, but and there are multiple monies, and they're not created equal. So let me give you the world's worst money. The worst money in the world is like Argentine pesos or Venezuelan bolivars or Zimbabwe dollars or Nigerian naira. Weak money. That mo the, the official inflation rate in Argentina is 105%. But that's the official rate, which is, which is that understates it. The actual inflation rate would be higher. And if the inflation rate is wanting 100%, that means your money is losing half of its value every 12 months. That means that within 10 years, you have nothing, okay? Uh, so bad money, bad currency or bad money loses all of its value over the course of a few years. In Venezuela, you lose all your value in 36 months. In Argentina, in 10 to 20 years, the Argentine peso was one to the dollar 21 years ago. If you had, uh, if you had a million dollars 21 years ago, the Argentine peso right now is about 480 to the dollar. So that's not a 99% loss. That's a 99.8% loss, right? In, in how many years? 20? 21 years. Okay. So what I'm saying is you don't have money if you have weak currency. Now, let's take strong currency. Well, the strongest currency in the world is the dollar. That's not money. You're losing 99% of your wealth over the course of 90 years in the, in the U.S. dollar, maybe more. The U.S. dollar, the only difference between the U.S. dollar and the peso is whereas it takes 20 years to lose your family's fortune in the peso, it takes about 90 years to lose your family's fortune in the dollar, right? Uh, my, my house in Miami Beach was $100,000 in 1930. It was appraised at $46 million dollars a few years ago. <laughs> Do the calculation. It's on a path to be worth $100 million, which means that the U.S. dollar will have lost 99.9% .9 of its value over 100 years. Warren Buffett knows this. Charlie Munger knows this. Basically, your, the bottom line there is your money in the bank isn't money. Okay, so the answer is you shouldn't have any money in a bank Right? You're, you're basically losing 7% of all your wealth every year in a good year. If it's the dollar, you're losing 15% of your wealth in a not good year. If it's the dollar, you're absolutely losing all your money over the course of a decade. So that's, that's kind of weak money. Awful money is developing world money, the Lebanese pound. The Lebanese pound got devalued. I mean, you would have lost all your money in five years if you had the pound. The strongest money, decent money, okay money was gold, but not great. The strongest money in the world is Bitcoin. 
because Bitcoin is absolutely capped at 21 million. It is global money. You could take a billion dollars of Bitcoin across the border. You can transfer it to a counterparty and no government can interdict that and nobody can inflate that. And so, so my, my answer there would be you can't trust any bank. You can't, yeah, you certainly can't trust a bank in Lebanon. Read about Lebanese banks. You can't trust a bank in Africa. You can't trust a bank in Asia. Michael, but if you call Chase, their customer service is amazing. How was the customer service with Bitcoin when you called the 1-800 number? There's nobody working at the bank of Bitcoin to steal your money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, thank you for no, calling Bitcoin. This is John Doe calling. I can't do nothing for you. You got to make the decision yourself. But I just want to say hi to you. But you know, <laughs> the, Bitcoin is a bank in cyberspace run by incorruptible software. It's going to keep your money. If you are incompetent, then you're going to suffer the consequences. <laughs> but let, let's think about what what banking executives in the U.S. do. The U.S. banking system is the best in the world. Here's what they do. You put $100 billion into the bank. They have the deposits. They turn around. The, the, the Federal Reserve interest rate, short-term rate, was zero. And these guys went and invested $100 billion of those deposits in, in mid-dated, long-dated sovereign debt that was yielding 1.8% interest. The Federal Reserve took the interest. But by the way, would you, ha would you loan me money for 30 years at 3% interest rate, like, can you imagine that? If the inflation rate was 8 or 10%, would you loan money out at 3% interest rate for the rest of your life? Not in a million years. Okay, that's what the banking executives in the U.S. did. At the, sing at the point when, when the You're talking about Silicon Valley Bank. All of them. Right? P Signature, pretty much. All these guys. Not, ju not just the ones that went bankrupt, right? There's, there's a host of banks. I, th I think they had, what was it, like $800 billion of unrealized losses or something. A host of banks went, and anybody that bought mid dated or long dated uh, bonds at the, you know, at the bottom of the market when interest rates were zero, they were loaning out money forever at 2% interest or 3% interest, or 1.5% interest. And, um, and as soon as you redeem, what happened, of course, is the Fed raised interest rates from 25 basis points. Actually, the rates went from 0 to 500 basis points in 12 months, about. That's the sharpest increase in interest rates mm -hmm. in, in memory. That in itself is, <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is. It's, it's, you know, it's just horrific, terrifying to think that any public servant would do that. But it's equally terrifying to think that if I was your money manager and if you had given me all your money when interest rates were zero and I, and I said, well, I guess interest rates will stay zero for the next 30 years. And so I'm going to loan it out as a bond and lock in a price of 2%. You know, you would have thought I was crazy. No, there is no individual... No, no corporation, no rational corporation, no economic actor that would loan money forever for three percent interest when inflation is running double or triple that. So the who question is, that? who would? And the answer is a bureaucrat, uh, uh, either a governmental bureaucrat, someone that is coerced by regulatory policy, where 
they're forced to. For example, a bank can't buy Bitcoin, but a bank is almost obligated to buy treasuries, right? So the politicians create a, a set of rules that strongly encourage you to do certain things and strongly discourage you to do other things. And generally, they encourage you to do the thing which is probably least economically viable. But by, there are probably local, local organizations and banks in foreign countries that own their own local currency, right? Like, would, would you buy, you know, an African currency with an inflation rate of 200% a year? No, but people do. Why? Because the government controls or owns the entity, and so they force that. So... I, I, just to finish this topic before we move on, when you said all these guys that are given you know, their money for 3% over 30 years or whatever, there's a lot of them. Silicon Valley Bank's not the only one. Signature's mm-hmm. not the only one. There's a lot of these guys that are Most doing it. Most of the banks. Most of the banks are we doing it. The, only the chart. Qu- Remember that chart? Exactly. 64% who was above it. And then J.P. Morgan was the little guy. 14% at, at the yeah. yeah. Just, so the point is don't trust your money in any bank that's basically betting it on, but, but, on irrational but investment. You say something like that as a guy that's that's a billionaire. The average guy's not a billionaire. The, the only thing they know what to do is walk up to the bank. So it's a different scenario you're in. But yeah. the, question, the question I want to ask you is the following. Are you saying there's going to be bigger banks that are on the line right now that we could see popping up that they're in the same situation because if most of them are doing it you know powell's not lowering rates and they're saying he's not going to do it till december so how many how much longer can these guys handle these types of uh, conditions yeah so let me just answer two questions what do i think will happen in the banking system and what do i think a person should do what I think happens in the banking system is all of the regional banks, you know, the small, mid-sized banks are at a massive disadvantage right now because the government is, is showing that they're not going to bail out those, those equity holders. So there's a, there's a migration of deposits from the small banks to the big banks. You know, I think that, you know, the JP Morgans, the Bank of America's, the, the mega banks will continue. They'll be just fine. They'll be supported by the government. The small banks are going to struggle, and that's what that's what you see going on right now. If you're a depositor, I mean, you'll probably get bailed out by the government. If you're a bondholder in the bank or an equity holder of the bank, you won't get bailed out, right? And so there's a crisis for investors uh, whereas, uh, whereas everybody that's a depositor doesn't want to sit around and take the risk, right? I mean, who wants any anxiety? So I, so I think that to the extent that you rely on banks, clearly um, the world is waking up and the U.S. is waking up and they're thinking, I want to be with big banks. Uh, I, I wouldn't have my money in a bank anywhere outside the U.S. in a weak country, right? You, you, need, you need to be in a rich, strong country to, uh, with a rich, strong bank. With regard to what individuals should do, um, I, I think the, the logical answer is... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For expenses, if, if you have expenses in the next three months, 
you have your expenses in the local currency, which is the peso, the naira, the whatever, because it's legally obligated for you to pay in the local currency. For the next three years of expenses or one to three years of expenses, you put your, your wealth in the, a strong, the strongest world currency in the world. That's the dollar right now. But you make sure that you have that currency either self-custodied or you have it in a bank that you trust. That's hard. <laughs> If you can't find a bank, if you were in Lebanon right now... Can we trust you, bank? <laughs> if you were in Lebanon right yeah. now, you wouldn't put your money in any bank. You would actually put it on the Bitcoin blockchain. For, for any amount of money you want to keep the rest of your life, if you, if you want to give it to your kids, if you want to actually retire on it, anything that's investable asset, you would put it in Bitcoin. You, wouldn't put, you would put it in, a, in the strongest possible world mm -hmm. currency, the global, the global money... And that's Bitcoin. You're not going to get rich investing in dollars. Do and you'll lose all your money if your dollars are in a weak bank. And if your dollars are in a strong bank, you'll just get poor slowly. And you're going to get poor... <laughs> You're going to get poor rapidly if your money is in not the dollar, but a weaker currency. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get completely bankrupt if you trust a weak bank. And so MicroStrategy, by the way, has... We had like $90 million. We had four plus billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So go figure, right? 98% of our assets are actually in the strong money. 2% is in the world's strongest currency in, the, in a good bank, in, a in one of the big four banks, right? And, uh, and that's about as much exposure as I want to a currency. Mm -hmm. Mike, you're, you're obviously a true, true, true believer when it comes to Bitcoin, no doubt. Uh, how much of it, the fact that we live in Miami and we see people fleeing Venezuela, Argentina, moving their money here, getting out of Brazil, getting out of Cuba, you know, it's all South America moving to Miami as well as all around the world. But how much of that helps, I guess, codify your ideology on Bitcoin or you're 100 percent anyway and this just sort of reaffirms everything you believe when you, when you see these people moving here? You know, you need this near-death experience, this mortality event, before you will open your mind to embrace a new idea, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and if you live in Argentina, when you talk to Argentines, they say, my family has been completely bankrupted uh, twice in the past 30 years. Okay, so in, in South America, if you live in Venezuela, well, they've all been bankrupted twice in 10 to 15 years. Um, if you live in Brazil right now, I think the interest rate's getting approached to four, approaching 14%, right? Money is hard to come by. And if you live in Africa, the Africans live under the CFA, uh, Colonial Franc, where they lose half their money every time they change currencies, and it's not convertible. And um, if you lived in, in uh, Nigeria, you know, you just ha you wake up one day and the bank says, you're only allowed to have $42 a day. And if you live in if you live in India, that you know you wake up one day this press release that says uh, all all rupee notes of ten thousand rupees or whatever above are now illegal, and you have to turn them all in in the next forty eight hours, or else they're null and void. And someone just invalidates the currency. If you lived in Russia in nineteen ninety eight, all the banks failed, and the ruble went to zero, and everybody lost everything. So I think that, uh, that people that live in other jurisdictions, if they've ever been completely bankrupt or seen their, their, their economy completely collapse, 
Sri Lanka, another good example. When that happens, then when someone says, okay, well, here's a bank in cyberspace and an asset that no one can meddle with and no one can, can corrupt or tamper with, you think, well, tell me more about that. But if you're, um, if you're a wealthy American, if you're Warren Buffett, you know, we, we have a very famous example, uh, a video that's going viral on Twitter. 13-year-old girl says to Warren Buffett, I'm really worried about the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency of the world. We're printing lots and lots of dollars. And if we're not the reserve currency, the value of the dollar is going to collapse. We're going to have hyperinflation. What should I do, Mr. Buffett? You know, and I, I wouldn't normally criticize, you know, a, a, a respected, successful business person of his age. But he and Charlie Munger did choose to go up on stage and answer questions and give financial guidance and advice and investment advice, and they are looked up to. And so you watch Warren Buffett answer the question, and his answer is, well, yeah, I mean, I guess the Fed inflated the, the money, but they needed to. And, uh, you know, it's really difficult, you know, and politics have a difficult mm. problem. And, yeah, you're right, it is a problem. And Munger will say, you know, the dollar's going to zero. It's going to zero. They know it's a problem. And then he kind of meanders through it with, a, with a, a, an end advice, which is, well, you know, I don't know, but, you know, America's a great country. Don't bet against America. But the, but the, but the, the blood-curdling, terrifying, you know, depressing, you know, takeaway from the clip is, is the 13-year-old girl knows what the problem is. The country's full of people that can articulate the problem and write thousand-page books on the problem. If you're rich in America, you don't have the answer because you're too comfortable, right? And so what you've got is a bunch of, of mega billionaires that are very successful in America, but they don't have an answer or solution to the 13-year-old girl. The solution to the question was Bitcoin, right? And Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger can't allow themselves to understand that because, because they're so successful, they don't need to open their mind to, and embrace a new idea. If Warren Buffett woke up tomorrow and his bank seized all of his assets and they were devalued to zero and he was a pauper and his neighbor, the Uber driver, was walking around with $100,000 worth of Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, Warren would say, what is that again? Mm -hmm. Explain that to me. Yeah. What do you mean? My government, my bank can't steal all my money? That's a pretty good idea. Right? And, and so I... I think that when you're a refugee from fleeing Iraq or you're crossing the border and, you know, when you try to go through an airport and a hostile regime steals all your money and seizes all your gold, when you have to flee your 1,000-acre or 10,000-acre farm in Africa because a hostile regime decided it was illegal for people like you to own land, when that happens, you become a believer in... Uh, a, a non-sovereign store of value crypto asset network, which is what Bitcoin is. The people that came to this country, the Huguenots, you know, the the settlers, the the colonists. I think they understood it. I mean, they had all their all their property seized from them from wherever they came from, and their idea was: here's a place where I can own something, and people might not steal it from me. As soon as they got here, people started trying to steal it from them again. Right? That's the human condition. Just slower. 
just slower. <laughs> but that's why they kept going west. It's like, I got to go west where there's no politicians to steal it from me. Right? And, that, and that's a pretty powerful driver. So I think that the, that the conclusion is people that are comfortable, they're fat, dumb, and happy in the United States are going to continue to reject new ideas like crypto assets, like Bitcoin, because they don't have to. If, if I don't have to embrace a new idea, when I get to a certain age, I won't. And that, that is... That is as old as the, it's the, the Thomas Kuhn structure of scientific revolution. He said, paradigm shifts only get embraced in times of war or when the old guard dies. If you want to introduce a new idea, you need a war. Wars kind of work because if we're fighting a war and I introduce an airplane and I drop a, a nuclear bomb on your head, then you stop rejecting air power. And you stop rejecting atomic weapons. You embrace the reality that, yeah, they do work, and maybe you need to figure it out. Wars work. But absent a war, people just have to, you know, they just have to pass on because they're not going to embrace a new idea. So you talked about Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger gave the famous rat poison speech, right? He actually gave two speeches. In the second one, he said, no, I didn't say it was poison. I said it was rat poison. So... You're saying that he's in the middle of the of the system. Was he disingenuous? Was he dishonest? Or was he mistaken? If you, if you don't spend... For, first, you have to have an open mind and say, is it possible that this works? And then second, you have to spend somewhere around 10 hours to understand it. I just don't think he has an open mind, and I don't think he spent 10 hours, right? I mean, it, it's not... It's not uncommon, right? People in their 80s and their 90s don't generally embrace the wonder that is the Unreal Engine or TikTok yeah. or, or Alibaba. Right? So, so it's, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, again, it, if they were private citizens, I don't, I don't criticize private 80 and 90-year-olds, octogenarians and, and the like, uh, for not embracing the new cool thing, right? It, they don't have <laughs> to like. Obvious, right. You don't have to like drone races, you know. It, you know, my my father doesn't have to like drone races in his 80s. That's fine. Uh, but the point is, if you're going to tell people how to invest hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars, and you're going to give advice to a 13 year old about how she can not be poor or not or, or not starve to death. I think that then you have to actually study these things. And the elephant in the room is everybody in the world is facing inflation. Everyone in the world is facing counterparty risk. Everyone, everywhere in the world, we're losing faith in governments, banks, and currencies. The solution is a bank that isn't run by people, that isn't subject to the whim of a government, that is incorruptible, that allows you to be your own bank. Right. And, and that is a message that's getting out. Uh, we just need to keep beating the drum on that. Uh, it, it is, I think, the most important economic opportunity slash issue slash technology of our time. I, I, got, I got a question for you. <clears throat> a guy here asked a question, but for me, uh, I, I kind of want to go through this and then I'll go to this uh, super chat. Um, what, what percentage, if, I, if we were to break down the amount of content you consume, Okay, percentage-wise, in the last 12 months, okay? What percentage of your research and reading is the market, like the whole market? What percentage is purely crypto? What percentage is politics? 
if you were to break that down. You know, 40% of what I consume is this, 20% is this, 10% is this. I would say something like a quarter is politics and a quarter is macroeconomics and uh, and a quarter is is the crypto economy and and uh, Bitcoin related things in the crypto economy and the last twenty five percent is is uh, micro strategy business activity you know our our capital operations, capital market structures, and, and, and our st uh, strategic initiatives. So there's nothing that is more uh, than the other. You're, you're evenly split amongst the four? Very interesting how you do that. I, I, I would say I'm evenly split amongst the four. Yeah. I, I'm quite aware that, that my impact is at the microstrategy level. I get to decide you know, whether we're going to pay off a $205 million loan or not, right? I get to decide whether we're going to issue a billion dollars of equity or not. And I get, you know, so I have an impact over what microstrategy is doing as the chairman of microstrategy. And I have a responsibility to my employees, my shareholders and the like. So a lot of my work is there. And then I have the ability to have an impact and a need to to be engaged in the crypto economy. Hmm. So I'm spending a lot of time on Bitcoin, Bitcoin education, Lightning development of, of Bitcoin applications, the Lightning network, those sort of things, right? That's where I can have an impact. In the macro economy, I study it because I want to know what's going on with China and Russia and interest rates and hyperinflation in Argentina. But I don't, you know, I, I have uh, no belief that I'm going to be able to control that, right? Like, uh, I don't pretend to be able to direct Argentine macroeconomic policy. And with regard to politics in general, you got to pay attention to what's going on with, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world. And you got to pay attention to the presidential race and, and the politics, the Senate and Congress and the regulatory activities. But it's above my pay grade, right? I have a, there's a hundred things that are going on in the political sphere. And when I you have, say above my pay grade, I don't have control over it is what you mean. I, a, I, you know, I don't have control over it. B, my opinion is not welcomed, <laughs> right? C, I don't have credibility, right? I'm not going to ex express strongly held opinions on medical policy or interest rate policy or, or the like because it is distracting. And so I, I think you have to study it. Yeah. And, you, and, you know, I have to know where the wind is going. Right? For example, there are some countries I would not live in right now. I'm not going to tell you which ones. <laughs> I'm just not going. There are some places I would not go, right? So, so you, you mean countries that people you would assume are safe to live in? Why wouldn't you? Tradition. I'm look. There's a war going on in the Ukraine, right? Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, right. do you pay attention? You pay attention, right? There are places I wouldn't make an investment. Sure. There are places I would not go. There are places I would not live, right? Uh, but if you look at my Twitter profile, I have laser eyes. And the, and the significance of laser eyes is if you want to make progress in this world, you have to focus and channel all of the energy you have behind a very, very particular objective. And I have one laser-like focus, right? Bitcoin is good money, right? Bitcoin is good for the world. Bitcoin is, is, a, is global freedom, global property rights. Interesting. Right? Like, 
I have a hundred other opinions, mm -hmm. but if, if I actually filled my feed with here's what I think about bicycles and here's what I think about diets and here's what I think about health and yeah. here's what I think about, you know, labor policy and here's what I think about states' rights and here's what I think yeah. about this country. At some point, uh, you just dilute your focus and you just – you don't have that much energy in this life. Well, we really brought you today to talk about uh, what your thoughts were on a plant-based diet. Because I know you've been researching that for a long I'm just obviously joking with you. But my you understand my point. I can yeah. talk for an hour yeah. about it. But the, <laughs> but the point is I'm not going to change anybody else's deeply held opinion yeah. on plant-based what, diets. What sources do you go to? When you say you're researching, what do you read? Are you a zero hedge guy? Are you a Wall Street Journal? What, what, do, you, what do you read? <sighs> You know, I'm uh, I'm scanning uh, everything on Bloomberg News. I'm scanning everything on the Wall Street Journal homepage. I'm scanning the news feeds on anything related to Bitcoin. Um, I'm s scanning, uh, you know, the major papers, the the New York Times, to see what they're thinking. I'm I'm scanning Twitter. What they're thinking. It's useful to know what they print, right? New, on the New York Times thinking, like they do a lot of. So, uh, yeah, we we could go there. Yeah, but I you don't think you could use no, no, thinking just, in New York Times no, in the, the same the sentence. The point is, the point is, what's what's on the front page? Like, what is what is the narrative on the front page? Yeah. What is on the front page of the Wall Street? What's Journal? a paper that? What's a paper you read that's like not a common paper? Like, is there some a site? Or in a journalist you trust, I, somebody that writes that you follow, an no, expert. I don't. I don't think you could. I don't think you could, in good faith, endorse any any one news outlet in the modern world. I think, I think uh, you have to scan everything, and you have to consider what's statistically significant. And of course, what you find in the in the news media is oftentimes, it, if. 92% of the people are dying of natural causes. 95% of the bandwidth, it, it bleeds, it leads. 95% of the bandwidth is the most colorful way to die, right? It's the, not the most likely way to die. It's the most colorful way to die. And so I, I think that all, all media is distorted and they're, they're all edited and they're all focused to a certain agenda. The only thing you can reasonably do is you can scan a bunch of them. You can scan, you know, your own Twitter feed will also be distorted. So you have to scan other feeds. And then you have to be continually going through this exercise in your head of saying, that happened, is it true? And then how significant is it? For, for example, Argentine inflation, 105%, is it true? No. Because the actual inflation rate is higher, it's, it's indicative of a truth. How significant is it? Well, how many people live in Argentina? That's one level of significance. The second is how much money is in Argentina. And the third level of significance is how, you know, how symbolic or, or how, how indicative or catalytic is it to other activity that will happen in the rest of the world? Right? How symbolic is it? So you, I, I think that... I'm in my 50s. I'm 58. 
If, if February fourth, by the way. February fourth. Same yeah. birthday as me. That's why I like. If guy. if you roll the clock back and you read the the same right. newspaper in your teens, you'll interpret something different. If you read news in your twenties, it's different. And your thirties, it's different. In your forties, it's different. Powerful. When you get to your fifties, if you read the same, like you read the same history book and you're reading it in your fifties, like, wow, I totally interpreted this differently when I was a ninth grader. Right? When I was in college, I interpreted this differently. So you have to have real-world experience. Oftentimes, you'll read a story, and they'll state something, and the truth is the exact opposite of what the story is. But you have to have lived life. Like, for example, you read a headline. Uh, we found 500 stone axes in a cave in Africa. They're between 1.2 and 1.7 million years old. Well... A school kid will say, oh, yeah, so I guess they found some stone axes. I look at that and I say, well, there was a factory that made stone axes in Africa 1.7 million years ago. That meant that there was demand for thousands of stone axes a year. That meant that there was an entire civilization that existed, right? In fact, there was money. There was a government, there was a furniture factory, there was a clothing factory, there was, a, there was agriculture, there was an entire society. You had to have 10,000 people all working together in coordination to justify having an inventory of 500 stone axes, right? And the only reason you actually read about the stone axes is stone axes is the only thing that's going to last a million years from now, right? And so what was there was a thousand X more interesting. The fact is there was an interesting higher level civilization with agriculture one and a half million years ago. They're not writing that in the history book because the literal historian only wants to report the bare minimum. But the reason that I could actually tell you a thousand other things is that I actually read books on Austrian economics. I, you know, I, I ran a business. I traded. I saw the, the, the meltdown and, and the, uh, the creation of dozens of, of industries. And I understand human nature, right? And so if you understand, you know, and you live the life, you're like, well, if I, you know, if I drink cartons of orange juice every day for months in a row, I know what's going to happen to me. It's not good. You can reverse that, right? And you can figure out what people ate 100,000 years ago. You know, you, they, they didn't do the things that we don't really think are good ideas today because they wouldn't have procreated through 100,000 generations. So I think that when you read the news in your 50s, if you've lived a life, and, and by the way, like a lot of things I interpret are because I ran a company for 30 years. You know, like, for example... You know, like a teenager, you know, if you look at movies created by people in their 20s, they have this view of business people. Like the badass billionaire business guy walks in and, every, and he tells everybody what to think and they, you know, and he's the, you know, he's the evil, Dr. Evil genius. But if you've actually run a business, you know, I remember back last time I told somebody what to think and they told me to go F myself. <laughs> right? And then, you know. And well, you, you are dressed in black. <laughs> you know, you're... And now I have a meeting and, and I'm very polite, you know, like, and the more talented you are, the more polite I am, you know, because I realize that the world will go on without me. Like the, those people think, oh, yeah, well, I got to work for the man. Well, no, you don't. I have 2000 people in my company right now. I have hired 30,000 people. They don't have to work for the man. 
right? The truth is unbelievable if, point. You know, you hire people, point. you realize that they are they will That's quit right. if they don't like. The CEO gets fired more often than employees do. Yeah, yeah. I lost twenty-seven thousand five hundred right. employees, yep. right? So you, you you think I take them for granted? Yeah. But but you have but I but I didn't when I was twenty-four. Michael, what a perspective. The the time when you are most confident, when you have the most amount of formal education and the least amount of real world experience, like in your early twenties, right? Because you think you can do it better than everybody else <laughs> and you haven't failed. And when you get another 25 years out, you're like, oh, I tried that. That didn't work. I tried that. That didn't work. I tried that. That didn't work. Oh, yeah, that was a really good employee, but they quit because I was rude to them. Oops, I wish I hadn't done that. Oops, took that for granted. So I guess I'm coming back to your question. How, what do I think about the news? It's like, Can you give us one name, one source? Like, yeah. Do you go to something that's yeah. not the traditional one everybody else goes to? Any person, I know it's not 100% accuracy you trust, but give us one source. No, I, 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 think, I think to give a boost to Twitter and Elon Musk, the boost is there are analysts and there are domain experts on Twitter that don't have corporations, that don't have lawyers to tell them they're not allowed to say that thing. And they actually say the truth. Can you give us their names? A couple of them. Michael, I'm going to hold you to give us one Fo name. No, no. Give Fo us one follow name. Me, follow me on Twitter. I mean, you can look at all, okay, all the say, people. I, I follow about 600 people okay, on Twitter. Okay, so then follow the people you're following. Hey. There, there are honest <clears throat> analysts and there are people that are domain experts and they publish their unadulterated thoughts. And if you actually put together a mosaic of all those things with your own real-world experience, you'll start to synthesize a view of reality, which is, I think, probably more reliable than any one, you know, edited traditional media source. Somebody just gave a $500 super chat and asked this question. said, have more people been hacked owning Bitcoin than banks have failed? Bitcoin's never this been hacked. This is John Coaster. Bitcoin's never been hacked. So the, the, the only people that suffer with Bitcoin are people that trust their Bitcoin to the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world. If you put your Bitcoin in Celsius or BlockFi or FTX, if you, if you put it in, an, in a wildcat bank and the bank steals your money, right? It's, the, the real message of Bitcoiners is don't trust verify and be your own bank and not your keys, not your coins. So the message of Bitcoin is you can't trust anybody. If I, if, if I actually told you the world is made up of imperfect people and there, let's say there's 100 families and we all have money and none of us trust each other and we all know we have idiot kids that are going to take over the family business and time and we want to create a community bank where we can collectively put our money, the answer would be, well, you don't put anybody in charge of it. You don't put any one family in charge of it. If, uh, you know, you might be the smartest amongst us, and, you're, and your son's going to have an idiot me, son, no. and eventually three generations down the road, it's not going to work anymore. So you write a piece of software. Everybody checks the software. We all agree the software is honest. We put the software on a computer. Nobody trusts your computer. We create 100 computers. Everybody runs their own computer with the software. We all agree collectively not to change the software. And anybody that tries to change the software gets kicked out of the network. Mm. That's what Bitcoin is. It's, it's an honest approach to solve a problem 
when you can't rely on a person, you can't rely on a family, you can't rely on an institution, you can't rely on a government, what we rely on is the collective self-interest of rational people over time with regard to that one thing. And it, and it really is a beautiful invention. How monumental would the Bitcoin halving be? I think it's uh, expected in April of 2024, so in a little less than a year. How big of a deal is that? I, I think it's a catalyst to the upside. Clearly, I mean, the amount of Bitcoin that uh, the miners receive in a reward they might sell will be cut in half. So there's, so that's a good thing. But I, I would say that any rational person that studied Bitcoin for 10 hours knows that there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. And so you, you know there's less than that because some millions of Bitcoin have been lost and they'll never be spent. And so you're buying Bitcoin because you know it's capped. And you know that gold and silver and oil and soybeans and paper currency and land and apartments are not capped. Everything else on earth is going to keep increasing in supply forever. Bitcoin is not. So once you figure that out, then the only question is, is there anything better? And you sift through the other 20,000 cryptos. And if they're not better and they're not better, then this is the one. Now, every intelligent person with money has put their money on Bitcoin. So what are you going to bet on? You're going to bet on the networks that were invested in by people without money that aren't intelligent, right? So, so Bitcoin is the winner because the smart money has chosen it. There are a lot of other catalysts, right? Every time there's hyperinflation in a place like Argentina, it's a catalyst. Every time a bank fails, it's a catalyst. Every time someone builds an application that's cool on Bitcoin, right, like all the ordinals and inscriptions and whatever, they're driving up transaction fees, it's catalyst. Every time a company like MicroStrategy buys another $100 million worth of Bitcoin, it's catalyst. Every time a regulator actually clarifies the fact that Bitcoin is a commodity, an asset without an issuer, and it's special, that's catalyst. So lots of catalysts. They're all going to continue the result will be Bitcoin will chop its way up with volatility forever. Just going to keep grinding up. because For you to believe Bitcoin's going to grind up, all you got to believe is that human beings have a natural tendency to want to, uh, to improve their life and protect their property and, and, uh, and uh, benefit their friends and family. And somebody gave two billion Zimbabwe dollars in super chat. <laughs> it's, it's actually five hundred forty. Two nickels. It's actually five hundred forty dollars that they gave. Michael, there you go. Can you give us your take on ordinals, TXN fees on Bitcoin? Our BTC are currently higher than any point in the last three years, and we are seeing uh, use cases like NFTs on uh, BTC main chain. Will this shift developers from Ethereum to Bitcoin? Is Sailor pro or anti ordinal? This is from an Assyrian brother, Ninos and Ninor. So what are your thoughts on this? Ah, so, my boys, Sailor, Ninos. Okay, so, so Sailor is pro-freedom and pro-markets. And Sailor, believe, he's an Austrian economist. So all value is subjective. So here's what I think. I think everybody should be able to launch whatever business they want to launch. And I think uh, everybody should be able to pursue, pursue uh, their happiness however they want. And... I think that lots of people will create lots of things that won't work. So I'm not going to give you a recommendation of stocks 
because some businesses will work, some won't, and some stocks will you will buy too high and some you will not, and I don't want to be on the hook for 10,000 stocks. I'm not going to tell you how to gamble, but I'm not going to tell you not to. I'm not going to give you a recommendation for a private business. You want to collect art? Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you not to. I'm just not going to tell you which piece of art to buy to make money. I don't know which, uh, which thing is going to work, and I know that over time... All, all fiat currencies will fail, and over time, I believe most businesses, in fact, all businesses will not be as good as investing in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the low-risk asset. I do think that uh, what happened uh, over the past uh, five months is pretty interesting. If you go to New Year's Eve, um, the average fee on the Bitcoin blockchain was like three sats per V-byte. I mean, there were blocks every 10 minutes that had $600 of transaction fees in them, right? And so the miners were getting a reward of $100,000 with $600 or $300 Holy of fees. Shit. So the fees were 1% of the reward. Yeah. There were nothing de minimis. <clears throat> and, and what happened over five months is Bitcoin had a massive rally. All of a sudden, the miners were getting $150,000 or $200,000 reward. But then we saw fees, transaction fees that got to more than six Bitcoin, which was $180,000 in fees. So we went from $1,000 in fees to $100,000 in fees, a factor of 100 increase. And uh, the fees started to approach parity with the reward. If you're a, uh, an investor in Bitcoin mining, if you're a Bitcoin miner and you want a bullish thesis, in order to have a bullish thesis, you want to see that fees, transaction fees, are at parity with the rewards. And you want to, then you want to, to have a, a belief that transaction fees will increase at a rate faster than the hash rate. So if the hash rate's going up 20% a year and transaction fees are going up 30% a year, then that's... a Good business, a really good business. And, and so in a world where transaction fees are 1%, they, they're irrelevant. You don't have parity, and then the growth rate doesn't matter. And then all you see is the rewards are decreasing 18% a year, and that's a bearish scenario. Uh, so I think that what happened with ordinals and NFTs is we crossed this chasm from what was a bearish scenario to a bullish scenario if I was a miner, I would be ecstatic. I think that long term, it, it, there are a lot of implications. Uh, long term, the implication is there's going to be a lot of applications on the Bitcoin base layer. You know, if I can inscribe a piece of art, right, an NFT is kind of an art, but I could also inscribe my last will and testament. And if my last will and testament is moving a billion dollars from me to you, how much is it worth to you to have that burned onto the blockchain and cryptographically verified? Yeah, at least a billion dollars for me, Michael. Would you pay 20 bucks? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, would you pay $100? Of course. There you go. So there are interesting applications. If I have a corporate resolution to make a billion-dollar investment and I docu-sign it and, and I'm worried about getting sued for hundreds of millions of dollars in the future, would I pay 100 bucks to burn that on the blockchain? Maybe, probably. If I have a message I want to send around the world and I don't want a, a hostile nation state to, to interfere with that message, is that worth 20 bucks or 50 bucks? Sure it is. So what people are realizing is the transactions on the blockchain, 
They, they are the ability to send a message that a nation state can't stop. Their ability to put, um, to put a document on, uh, on a network for 100 years that no one can actually tamper, an immutable blockchain. I mean, if, if I can store a, a billion dollars for 100 years, that's valuable. But, you know, if you, had, if you wanted to move $10 million of oil from New York to London, it would cost you about $350,000. So what if I want to move $10 million of Bitcoin from New York to London? What if I want to move $10 million worth of a document of something? of? If you wanted to sell a $10 million work of art, that's $500,000 to a million or more in auction fees. Mm -hmm. so, so people have thought, well, transactions, man, they, they, there's no future for them. But I actually am of the opinion that transactions at a dollar or two dollars transaction, they're very undervalued. This is the most valuable, most tamper-proof, immutable, secure transaction network in the world. If I gave you $100 billion and I said attack the network, you couldn't do it. If you were a nation with $100 billion and four years, you could slow it down, but you couldn't stop it. So I, I think that the real significance of ordinals and NFTs and inscriptions is people used to take the transactions for, for granted and they undervalued the Bitcoin mining network. And now I think what you have is a lot of speculation and you also have... Um, you have a migration of crypto development energy from the other cryptos to Bitcoin. That's a good thing, I think. It's, in very, it's, it's inevitable because Bitcoin is the low-risk crypto network and the high-security crypto network. So, so you're going to see speculation move. You're going to see development move. But, um, but long-term, what's really significant here is that people are going to see Bitcoin as the most secure cyber network or the most secure computer network in the world. And if I told you uh, I'm going to burn a document and I want it to stay immutable for 100 years and I don't want any hostile corporation or nation state or actor to be able to tamper with it or stop it. And in 100 years, I want to prove that that's my document. You know, Satoshi could sign a digital document. He could sign a message today and prove that he owns $30 billion of Bitcoin and he could do it in a split second. That's the power of the Bitcoin network, and that has been underrealized. It's uh, it's underestimated. So I think that what what's going to go right now is it's going to be a lot of excitement, but ultimately the ethically sound, technically sound, economically sound future is for people to realize that Bitcoin is this immutable, you know, incorruptible non-sovereign computer network and it's going to protect your money but it's also going to protect your integrity and people are going to pay money for truth on that network and that's what's going to finance those miners and when you look at all those miners running in texas you're saying what are they doing they're protecting the integrity of western civilization maybe of all they're protecting the integrity of the human race for the next thousand years. Michael, we, that's we, worth something. That's powerful. We got five minutes, and uh, I, I want to go through two things with you. One, you said uh, Satoshi. Uh, how often do you guys text each other? Are you guys like uh, in communication regularly, or? Is he <laughs> <laughs> I think about Satoshi every day. Really? 
does he think about you? Is there like a direct line of community? Because you're, you're becoming gradually the, a, the Billy Graham of Bitcoin. Like, you know, you went was, from a non-believer <laughs> to a believer. It was a one-way gift. The reason that Bitcoin is ethical is Satoshi made a one-way gift to the human race asking nothing in return. And, and that is an extraordinary wow. So as a, as a guy that you said you've hired 30,000 employees, uh, 2,000 are still with you. You've been operating for 30 years, okay? You, you've been a billionaire for a minute. You were a billionaire in the late 90s, and you've been in that talks. For you, it's probably not a big deal because you've been that for a while. But to, to the average person to see that category where there's only 700 to 900 of you in America, it's a pretty big deal to get to a place like that. There's a guy right now that could be potentially looking for another job, and he was being interviewed on MSNBC by this lady named Stephanie Rule. And he was asked the question, I'm curious to know if you would hire somebody like this. This is a phenomenal question here. There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody's ever run for the office. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. Would you hire somebody like that to run a, I don't know, like a four or five trillion dollar year company, whatever the number is, $32 trillion company, uh, give or take. I could be off on the GDP. You think that would be a good CEO for a company that size? <laughs> now you're asking me a question that's somewhat above my pay grade. I, I, I think that... Uh, wait, wait, wait. You're a voter. Tom, let's see what he's got to say. I, I, th I think that the number one criteria uh, to run an organization, you know, is humility combined with a bit of wisdom uh, from life experience, but combined with an extraordinary amount of, of energy. You, you know, you, you have to eat, sleep, and breathe the thing. <clears throat> and I think that Organizations that have um, that have people with too much confidence, they tend to go off the rails, and so it's it's good to know what you don't know. Got it. So so to understand the what you meant, we have to speak sign language. So he left it to you guys. You you decide what our friend here meant <laughs> by that. Whether he but just 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 that for your own company, if you were getting to a point where you would be replacing yourself as a CEO. Would you look at somebody and value a person with, you know, who's 82 years old wanting to be the CEO of MicroStrategy, or would you look for somebody younger? Or would it even matter to you age-wise? Well, I, I mean, I did have the opportunity to replace myself last year, and I'm the executive chairman, and we, are, uh, we appointed a new CEO, and the CEO is Fong Lee, and, and he's... Um, in his 90s? Young, he's in his 40s. Oh, okay, he's in his 40s. Early 40s. <laughs> so you weren't, like, you weren't going on, like... SeniorCEOs.com and looking for recruiters to to find like, I mean that's not even seniors, right? Because baby boomer is what nineteen forty six to sixty four. So you weren't interested in experience. You know, I'm I'm not going to say the perfect age to be CEO because there are a lot of examples. I mean, I I myself appointed myself CEO at age twenty four, but then again, I was only responsible for myself, <laughs> and I couldn't mess yeah, much up. That's different though. because I inherited, you know, and, and it took me. Many, many years to get to the point where I could break something. <clears throat> I, well, I think that the bigger the organization, the more careful one needs to be. 
this is a pretty big well, organization so. we're talking about, and this guy's applying for that job. Three hundred uh, million. Anyway, so uh, uh, Michael, every time you come, uh, by the time you're done talking, my brain feels like has had a four-hour workout, even though it was only ninety minutes today. Because you make me think, and I love the way you explain, and you're always gathering information from different places, and the audience loves this. So this is, a, I think you're one of only uh, three or four names that we've had on three times. So if you've never felt like, maybe if you recently have not been getting enough love, we just want to make sure you know we love Michael Saylor, <laughs> the Billy Graham of Bitcoin. That's going to be the new nickname, by the way. The evangelist. The, the evangelist. The Billy Graham of Bitcoin baptizing <laughs> folks in Bitcoin around the world. Okay, if you, if you don't remember anything else I said today, just remember uh, Bitcoin is hope. And go to hope.com. That's where all the information is. Really? Is Bitcoin, that good. Laser eyes. Bitcoin, good. You can hope. boil it all down to that. Everything else is complicated. And big week next week. The Miami Bitcoin uh, conference is going to be yeah, here. Yeah, 15,000. Cyber Hornets coming to Miami. They'll all be oh, right here. It. It's going to be awesome. You're going to baptize all of them in the name of Satoshi, Bitcoin, and what would be the third? You know, there's got to be the technology, right? Anyways, Michael, once again, thank you. Gang, all the stuff is below. Links, Rob, let's put it there for people to be able to find uh, uh, Michael. I asked him a question earlier about Michael. Who do you follow on uh, social, what you read their articles? If you go follow his Twitter account, you'll be able to know who he follows and that's where you'll see where he gets his intel from, okay? Maybe that's one way to find out where, uh, who those 590 people are that uh, Mr. Saylor follows. Anyways, gang, we're about to announce the next live podcast. If you want to be one of the first to know about it, text the word podcast to 310-340-1132. Again, 310-340-1132. Text the word podcast. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye.